Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, but most people know me as Kidney Boy. Tonight, I'm joined by the full filtrate and a few special guests. We have Dr. Agnes Fogo from Vanderbilt, Dr. Su from uh, Wuhan in China, and Dr. Al Shami at Sinai in Manhattan. So why don't we just, uh, uh, Dr. Fogo, you want to do a little bit more introduction of yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I appreciate it. I am the director of the Kidney Pathology Laboratory at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I do research on kidney disease also, and have known Dr. Sue for a long time, and was very grateful when she asked for my input to study findings in an autopsy series from Wuhan. So she is the first author of the paper you'll be discussing, and I am her colleague who helped with organization and looking at some of the beautiful work that she did and helping to write the paper. Excellent. Dr. Sue, can you introduce yourself a bit? Maybe I can introduce Dr. Sue. Wonderful. Why don't you do that? Dr. Sue is a nephrologist and professor at Wuhan, and she did uh, some time studying renal pathology with Dr. Charles Jeanette at UNC. So she has expert knowledge both in kidney pathology and in nephrology. Dr. Sue, do you want to add anything to this general introduction? It is very well. Thank you. Thanks for your introduction of me. Yes, thank you, Dr. Fogo. Nice to meet you. Uh, excellent, excellent. Dr. Al-Shami, tell me about yourself. All right, so uh, I'm Al-Shami. I'm a third-year renal fellow at Mount Sinai. I uh, f- finished my two years of uh, nephrology fellowship, and then I'm doing a third year of home dialysis fellowship here still at Mount Sinai. Uh, prior to that, I did my internal medicine residency at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia, and then I did my medical school education at uh, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Rumor has it they had to actually create the fellowship to keep you there. It was the only way they could find a way to keep you there. Is that true? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, excellent. I think it was a, I think it was a good decision. And uh, we have the full filtrate here. Swap? Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist uh, and an epidemiologist in the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm an attending nephrologist and physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Samira? I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Uh, Very excited to have these two pathology celebrities here today and uh, our own outstanding fellow from Mount Sinai, Osama. Uh, I tweet at at S.S. Farouk. And Matt? Hi, everybody. This is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University with a special affinity for the renin-angiotensin system. Excellent. So tonight we'll be talking about what else but COVID. To me, it feels like the first time we're getting hard uh, science data on this. Uh, This is a study in KI that looked at 26 uh, autopsies, and we got to take a look at what's going on in the kidney. And there's a lot going on. And that's, I'm glad that we have some pathologists to help us walk us through this, this story. So let's just, let's just start right off the bat, you know, what are the procedures here? What was the what were the methods here? These are all patients that dece- that were deceased due to uh, respiratory uh, disease in Wuhan. Is, is that right, Doctor Sue? Yeah, yeah. Always death because the respiratory failure. So one of the interesting things about the study is we're looking at all these kidneys, but only only about nine of them had uh, clinical kidney failure. Is that right? Yeah, the incidence of the kidney injury is not uh, much higher than the other disease in the ICU. I'm not think uh, uh, it is, uh, looks like a MERS because um, compare MERS to SARS, uh, it happened uh, in 2003. The MERS caused uh, more severe the kidney injury. But uh, in this case, in our cohort, I do not find the special and um, more severe injured to the kidney. And also from the pathology and from the clinical, we think the injury of the kidney may be to the many other factors. 
such as the hypoperfusion drug or some hypoxia, or, but we can detect the virus by the EM in the kidney. So I'm very mm, confused about this. Is this just a, a bystander or it will mm, really do really the, the kidney injury by this virus? I'm not sure. Excellent. So these, all these patients were deceased and you got, these are all autopsy specimens. These aren't biopsies. You pull out the entire kidney and then you do, you were able to get samples from the, from this entire kidney. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you did this soon after death, right? I guess that's a, this is a, this is a, a big concern with uh, autopsy specimens is the time between when the patient dies and when the sample is, when the, when the kidney is removed. Yeah. Yeah. Very short, around two to four hours. Two to four hours. And so, and again, again, I just want to get, I want to get back to this. Normally, I wouldn't expect anybody to even look at the kidney if the patient didn't have clinical kidney failure. Why did you, why did you go take a look at the kidneys of patients that didn't have clinical kidney failure? Uh, because there's still, uh, uh, in the ICU, um, there's still some patients need to, to be treated with the renal replacement uh, therapy. And somebody maybe they have uh, reduced the urine output. I think we pay um, not enough attention to the kidney injury because for this patient, every day we will check the blood, the number of the white cell or the platelet, but we will not monitor the urine alteration every day. So I think they are not we need to monitor. Sorry, can I can I ask so, a quick question before we go there? Kind of a oh, silly, please. kind of a um, basic autopsy question. So when you say that you're we're looking at the kidney in, in autopsy, how many samples is that, or how do you get the samples? Are you kind of looking at different parts of the kidney? Um, all I'm familiar with is when we do our kind of core biopsy and kind of looking at one area. So what does that look like for an autopsy sample? Since we just uh, received the tissue, so I do not very clear of uh, what kind of the bio-autopsy. So we just received the tissue fixed in the solution. Let me, so please, can I please received... address that? Because usually yeah, for the medical autopsy, the organs are sliced and diced and the kidneys are bivalved. Then they're cut in what we call bread loaf fashion to look for any focal lesions and representative sections are taken from the kidney and all of the other organs in a usual medical autopsy. Sometimes the family gives a restricted permit to only study particular organs of interest, but a standard full medical autopsy includes an examination grossly and then microscopically of all the major organs. And sometimes this may be altered to limit samples to large wedges of tissue. But in this case, the pathologists, did they receive the samples in formalin that were pretty, that were fresh, just a couple of hours old after the patient deceased. So it was allocated on the front end to do the additional studies that Dr. Sue was able to do with tissue allocation as you would for a medical renal biopsy. And so, and then Dr. Fogel, can we, can you kind of discuss what, you know, the light microscopy findings? Uh, sounds like mo- most of the pathology is going to be in, in the tubules. Is that right? Kidneys showed acute tubular injury with varied size of vacuoles. A few of them showed isometric vacuolization, which was associated with IV immunoglobulin or mannitol treatment. In addition, another major finding was in some cases, occlusion of some of the peritubular capillaries or to a lesser degree, segmentally in glomeruli with red cells without fibrin or platelets. And is that, a, is that, is that atypical? Some have claimed in our Twitter discussion that maybe this is just congestion and you see this in all autopsies, but I wasn't attending on the autopsy service for multiple decades, and this was uh, not typical of usual congestion, which is widespread and everywhere. This looked more uh, specific and disease-related rather than a terminal, nonspecific event, although 
it is difficult to be absolutely certain about that. But congestion does not happen in all autopsies. Okay. And then, and typically if this was a clotting disorder, you would see fibrin being deposited there, right? And there was none of that. Is that correct? Uh, There were three cases that had very segmental fibrin thrombi within glomeruli, but the widespread red cell agglutination, or I should say accumulation and obstruction of the peritubular capillaries with beautiful stains that Dr. Sue did were not associated with fibrin or with platelets. And I don't know if Dr. Sue, if you want to clarify anything, I may not have said in enough detail. Uh, I do not have more. Just to see the red blood cell aggregation. Um, so for the necrosis, it is very rare. Only in the three cases, we found the very segmental necrosis or fibrin deposition well, in glomeruli. Yeah. yeah, I don't think actually it was quite necrosis, as we've discussed, in that the tissue wasn't destroyed. It looked like fibrin within the glomerular capillary loops without rupture of the glomerular basement membrane or cariorexis. So it was consistent with fibrin thrombi. And by EM, the endothelial injury was quite widespread with swelling of endothelial cells, again, without platelets or fibrin. And then there was also, there was mention of um, hemosiderin that was found in the, was that inside the tubules that you found the hemosiderin? Uh, yes, some cases had hemosiderin granules within tubules. And even though red blood cell fragments were not present, I guess there could have been fragmentation or elaboration in any organ. Some cases also had findings suggestive of uh, rhabdomyolysis clinically, and this may have been a contribution in some of the cases. So the, the hemosiderin indicates hemolysis? Is, is, that, is, that, is this what we're, we're finding there? Or what, what is it, what's the significance of the, of the hemosiderin? It's from breakdown of red blood cells. So whether they're old red blood cells or hemolysis everywhere or free hemoglobin in the blood that is filtered, the origin uh, cannot be established where it comes from. There's hemolysis at some point, and we're seeing some, some residuals in the tubules. Or, there. yeah, or, somebody, somebody who has excess transfusions might just from having a greater turnover of red blood cells have hemosiderin. So, for instance, you could see it without hemolysis necessarily. Okay. And then there was also a business of rhabdo. And I think all of us that are taking care of these patients mm-hmm. are seeing a lot of rhabdo. This is not surprising to any of us. And uh, Dr. Sue, in your manuscript, you talk about, you, you beautifully lay out patients that were receiving drugs that may have been nephrotoxic. Um, is there any indication on the biopsy that makes you think that these, this was nephrotoxic injury? Uh, I do not have very clear or direct evidence for it. Because this patient is very critical here. They receive uh, multiple drugs. Yeah. And also, they, I'm also, I'm not sure whether this virus will attack the muscle directly. Because uh, much of this patient uh, in the onset of the disease, they have the muscle pain. So yep. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, that makes uh, sense. Sure. Do you have the uh, muscle specimens? I mean, if you did a, a full medical autopsy, do you have that information? Yeah, we do not uh, see the muscle yeah, to now, but I think it is a good point. So just to point out that the uh, non-isometric vacuolization of the tubules could be a response to any of multiple injuries, including drug toxicity could cause this. It isn't a specific pattern that allows you to say specifically what caused the injury, with the exception of the few cases that showed isometric vacuolization, a fancy word meaning the vacuoles are all of similar size, which was associated in those few patients with IV immunoglobulin or mannitol. That we can link more specifically to a treatment that causes a specific pattern of tubular injury. Let, let's, let, and I want to go back to the, the biopsy findings. We've gone through the tubule findings, uh, the glomerular findings. We've talked a little bit about there. Is there anything of significance on those glomerular findings that we haven't discussed? There was a patient with IgA. When I read the article, it sounded like a lot of background disease to me. There was patients with hi- history of hypertension and diabetes, and you were finding stuff that was consistent with that. Do you think there was anything in the glomeruli those three cases where there was some fibrin deposition. Besides that, anything else do you think was specific to this disease? Well, there were uh, rarely podocyte virus particles associated with some 
podocyte foot process effacement. I think it's very interesting that some few cases reported of collapsing glomerulopathy in patients with COVID-19 who are survivors so far and had severe respiratory disease and then had onset of nephrotic syndrome, so it didn't seem to be a pre-existing condition. Uh, Virus was not found in several of those cases. So it may be that collapsing glomerulopathy, which from the very few cases that have been published and some cases discussed amongst us, may particularly be associated it is postulated with ApoL1 risk allele variants and additional second hits from immune cytokine storm with limited evidence to support a direct viral injury of the podocyte in the collapsing lesion. So Dr. Sue and I have speculated that maybe these cases with severe lethal COVID-19 have overwhelming viral load, and that is why virus was detected directly in the kidney. But as she said earlier, whether it is a major cause of the injury in the kidney or just a marker of an overwhelming systemic lethal disease, I don't think we could conclude from this autopsy series. And I would like Dr. Sue's further comment on that. Yeah, I agree. Although I found the virus in the podocyte and in the clinical, the patient is not usually has a lot of protein urea. So I do not think the virus directly damaged the podocyte and caused the protein urea, but direct evidence of it. I was going to ask a question about that. Uh, what was the, when you say you found virus uh, in the podocyte, was that from electron microscopy or was it from staining with antibody? What what was the methodology to, to find that? Uh, structure by EM. Well, there was also there was also antibody study done for the protein that is common to the two coronaviruses that showed evidence of kidney parenchymal infection, but not definitely proven to be in the podocyte, but in cells consistent with tubular epithelial cells by immunostaining further supports virus. And by EM, the particles found by Dr. Sue, I took the liberty of consulting with Mark Dennison, a worldwide coronaviral expert at Vanderbilt, who was very impressed and confirmed that these pictures were typical of coronavirus. Some people have postulated that perhaps clathrin-coated pits that are endocytosed could have a similar appearance. The findings described in the paper that I'm a co-author on with Dr. Sue seems much more consistent with virus than with clathrin-coated pits that are endocytosed based on the size, the membrane composition, and the spikes, and certainly were deemed to be typical of coronavirus by Dr. Dennison. How frequent was that uh, scene? Uh, if you were to sort of, I mean, with the autopsy specimen, you have a lot of glomeruli. Is this pretty rare finding, or is it in a lot of different um, areas? So it is not to uh, be found in every case. Well, the case that had it, in the, in the case that had it, how many glomeruli had evidence of virus uh, in the podocytes? Oh, because we just uh, detect the virus mainly by the... Uh, EM? Yeah. You don't know. Yeah, yeah most are uh, one or two glomeruli. By EM, we typically don't pick many, many glomeruli because we generally are looking for findings that are diffusely distributed. But in the EM cases, Dr. Sue, how frequent was it present among the podocytes, only in a very rare podocyte or in multiple podocytes in the glomeruli you examined? I think it is more than half, more than mm-hmm. half. So that's pretty- definitely a very, I mean, that's an, a very interesting finding. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, I think just the, the, the fact that you know, it's just how many, 20, how many patients is it total? 26. Yeah, 26. So you think about how many individuals have COVID-19 and it looks like, you know, uh, we might not be able to, to detect it clinically uh, in everyone. So I think that's an important finding. I want to reiterate that the patients with biopsies of nephrotic syndrome developing de novo during COVID-19, a couple of published case reports and some cases I'm aware of in circulation were not able to find virus within the kidney. And these patients had a collapsing glomerulopathy, a very severe podocyte lesion with marked proteinuria. So it seems that in those cases, direct viral infection of the tissue is not operative in the collapsing glomerulopathy. One of the, the, the thoughts on this, and maybe you can correct me, is it that the collapsing is a sort of a, uh, a, a reaction to uh, the cytokines and 
interferons and things like that, whereas uh, you might have just more of a low-grade proteinuria in a direct viral infection. Yeah, that's a a very interesting postulate. I am uh, just working on a small case series of collapsing glomerulopathy with Dr. Velez at Oshner, Dr. Chris Larson at Arcana and others. Dr. Chris Larson published in Kidney International Report a case of collapsing glomerulopathy with ApoL1 risk allele variants with no virus detected. In the cases that we have, uh, the one case that we have worked up fairly fully has ApoL1 risk allele variants, and in addition was negative by in situ hybridization and also negative by EM for viral particles. I spent a long time looking Um, One of the other interesting findings of the study is you guys looked at ACE2 uh, receptors, and you found them to be upregulated in a certain population of your patients. Can you comment on that? ACE2 protein. Just want to... Oh, God, thank you. H2 protein. Yeah, ACE2. Yeah. So Dr. Dr. Sparks will make sure we say this correctly, but ACE2 is a protein and it is expressed on the cells and is a ligand for the virus that allows entry into cells. If everyone could speak like that. So Dr. Sue, do you want to tell them about the cases that we, in response to very helpful input from Kidney International, added immunohistochemistry for ACE2 in five of the cases? Yeah, so um, from my limited uh, the data in the, uh, the ACE2 expression in the kidney is uh, increased uh, obviously, but uh, in the normal condition, I also check uh, some publication and uh, documents in the normal state, the ACE2 is most expressed in the kidney and in the testing. So this is the same finding in our discourse. But uh, after the viral infection, I found the ACE2 is uh, upregulated, mainly located in the tubule, and especially the parietal cell has a new expression of this receptor. I'm not sure the role of the ACE2 in the parasite. Maybe it is uh, uh, kind of the, the cell, stem cell of the proximal tubule. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I think you mean the parietal epithelial, excuse me, I think you mean the parietal epithelial cell, not the parasite. And it was in three of the five cases that had de novo expression in parietal epithelial cells. We don't want to uh, be confusing with other cells that have a similar name. Was there any attempt to stain for TMPRSS2? Why why, why is that interesting, Matt? Well, I think that if you look at some of the single-cell RNA-seq data from the kidney, you have a lot of expression of ACE2 in the proximal tubule, but you have a lot of expression for TMPRSS2, which is needed for uh, cell entry in the distal nephron. It's sort of a discordant... Uh, you know, sort of expression pattern. Uh, however, that's in a normal state. So what happens in infection and, and that sort of thing, it's unclear. So I, I think that th- these are some of the mysteries we're trying to, to solve of how this virus can in- infect the kidney. Do we think that patients that get overwhelming viremia, and, or not, not necessarily viremia, but overwhelming viral disease and die are patients that just happen to be all the way over on the on the right side of the bell curve and have a lot of ACE2 protein? Or do we think that the, the virus actually upregulates this? The studies, uh, basic science studies suggest that at least in the lung, um, when you have an acute infection with the 2003 SARS, you have downregulation of ACE2. But it hasn't really been looked at in other organs. So what happens in the kidney and other organs is unknown. And again, the viral burden, judging from the electron microscopy and the immunostaining, is not overwhelming, although present in some of the cases, it's not overwhelming in the kidney. It's not loaded with detectable virus. So I guess the final bit on this study is, uh, what does this teach us about viral injury or the the kidney failure or the kidney disease that we're seeing with COVID? What do we know now that we've done autopsies on 26 patients and we find lots of tubular disease? some but not very impressive glomerular disease, some evidence of rhabdo, and some evidence of uh, some hemolysis or uh, high red cell turnover. What are the surprises and how does this change what we think about 
uh, COVID nephropathy. I was surprised with how extensive the acute tubular injury was. Even though I constantly in my clinical practice am reminded that serum creatinine is a very poor indicator of low GFR, the extent of acute tubular injury here was still surprising to me because only a subset of the patients had clinically detectable increased serum creatinine as an indication of low GFR. That was surprising to me. The multifactorial contributions to the acute tubular injury are not surprising to me at all. In previous autopsy studies or biopsies of critically ill patients, we often see more than one thing. These patients do not follow Osler's rule of only having one thing going on to explain their lesions. Excellent. Anybody else have any thoughts? Dr. Sue especially? Oh, please. Yeah, no, I was, uh, so we are suspecting a lot of subclinical kidney injury here. There'll be a lot of people who have normal creatinines and because the proximal tubule has an entryway into the kidney, measuring some sensitive um, markers might give us some insight into severity or uh, or other things that may not be picked up by, by creatinine. So uh, we are collecting serial samples, even in people who do not have clinical AKI and hoping uh, it will jive in with what you are seeing on pathology. I would hope that there could be long-term follow-up because just as clinically recognized AKI is now known to be a major risk factor for subsequent CKD, it may be that COVID-19 survivors will have acute tubular injury that may put them at increased risk for CKD down the road. So I hope that we can have longitudinal careful follow-up with thoughtful measurement of markers of kidney injury that maybe are more subtle uh, than serum creatinine. I think the virus also may have um, long-term effects. I don't know about the kidney specifically, uh, but I saw an interesting study um, not looking at SARS-CoV-2, but uh, other SARS viruses, and samples were taken 12 years after patients recovered. Um, and there were um, the study looked at metabolic um, or the metabolome of these patients, and there were significant differences between those that recovered and those that did not. So whatever change may be going on, perhaps at the kidney level could maybe be more long-term than is um, apparent. Excellent. So uh, we actually have been joined by uh, Dr. Parikh. Dr. Parikh, you want to introduce yourself for a moment? Yeah. Uh, first, thank you, Joel, and uh, your team too for inviting me. I forgot I was, I thought it was on Friday, so hence uh, had no idea and missed the date. So but, uh, we don't record on the Sabbath. I'm just telling you straight <laughs> out, okay? Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> Should have known that. Um, anyway, I'm uh, I'm a I'm practicing nephrologist, division director of uh, Johns Hopkins University, and also epidemiologist and a translational researcher. And focused on AKI, right? And yes, biomarkers. absolutely. Yeah, this is AKI the, biomarkers and the whole spectrum there. Yep. His, his, his middle name is AKI. What's what's the situation in Baltimore clinically with COVID right now? It's uh, we are looks like in a chronic growth stage. I don't think we are getting the peak like uh, New York got it, but on a daily basis, the hospital is seeing uh, an additional cases, five to ten cases, net cases. So we are at Hopkins. We have dis- we discharge like 20, 25 cases every day. But we are seeing the same number of admissions. So across the system, we have about 250 cases as of today. And have you had to reconfigure your hospital to deal with this load? Lots. So we have opened like, yes, yes. The entire schedules, everything is becoming ICU. But we still have a lot of capacity. So if the surge comes in, we are prepared. And lots of planning has happened at Hopkins. The the building structure is such that uh, majority of the floors can be kind of negative vacuum. So converting um, them into ICUs and COVID floors has been relatively easy. So, but soon it will look like uh, entire Th- Those COVID words home. have never been said ever before, that converting to a COVID unit has been relatively easy. Everybody else is pulling their hairs out trying to do that. I know, I know. So somehow somebody planned for this, that uh, some disasters may come through. So very fortunate here. Excellent, excellent. So you had this uh, fascinating video that you posted to Twitter last night about using, or a couple nights ago, about using a dialysis machine to produce CRT treatment fluid. Is that right? 
Correct. So, and is this fluid? So walk me through, what did you yeah. do? No, no, this was uh, last weekend. Uh, we got call from our friends in New York, uh, uh, Jay Radhakrishnan and Sumit Mohan uh, in Colombia and the Cornell system. They have, they are inundated with um, AKI requiring RRT. About 80% are, 80 cases in the system are on uh, continuous modalities and they are running out of dialysate. So they called us, in fact, they called the vice president of the supply chain to say, can they, can we share some of our dialysis fluid? So I go to the hospital with my clinical director, Derek Fine, and we see how much supply we have. So we have about, say, six, 7,000 bags, but the amount they require every day. So even if we gave up, like, say, 20% of our supplies, it would last them for three days. So it was not sustainable in any way. So that time, Derek and I were thinking we have to help and how to do it. So I'm on service staring at the dialysis unit. I'm like, why can't we capture this dialysate that our in-person, uh, in-center acute uh, machine is preparing? These in-center dialysis, they have massive RO capacities, the ability to generate tremendous amounts of dialysate for conventional dialysis. And you say, can you turn this into something that would be appropriate for a CRT machine? Absolutely. And it is 45x concentration. So basically, once you have your acetate, bicarbonate, uh, concentrate, uh, the RO ultra pure water mixes and the dialysate gets uh, pushed into the cartridge. Interestingly, so we thought, okay, that could be captured. And the, fortunately, the bioengineering team, I work with a team of bioengineering students who are preparing for kidney X projects and all their projects have come to a halt. So because of COVID, so I called two of my students and said, can we create connectors which would connect the dialysis cartridge, the where the uh, where it gets plugged in? I, I don't know if people have seen the blue and the red uh, uh, plugs that go on two ends of the dialysis unit. If we connect the dialysate on one end, but on the other end, instead of having the bloodline, if you could capture it into a bag, it could be a PD bag, it could be a TPN bag, then it would be done. So the, the, the students saw it, they measured the calipers, and in six hours they had a connector ready for us, which would be 3D printed, which would, which would be connected to the dialysis cartridge on one end and the TPN on the other end. And then we had to change some settings in a dialysis so it would not alarm and the conductivity would remain around um, uh, 13 and 14, and the dialysis started capturing. So uh, that and was it, the its capacity was amazing. You, 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 how, how much could you? How much dialysis could you generate? We are capturing a, a liter a minute. So essentially, you can fill up a five-liter bag in five to six minutes. And every nephrologist knows there's precisely 1,440 minutes in a day. So running this thing 24 hours, you can do 1,500 liters. That's so incredible. Abs- Absolutely. So we sent two of those connectors to New York and they are testing it out. And I think uh, they want to go into production on Monday because they are still having dialysis supplies. So we are talking back and forth and walking them through the thing. Now, now, dialysate famously is not sterile, right? It doesn't have to be sterile. So this would not be appropriate for um, a CVVH. It would only be for CVHD. Is that right? That is crucial. So yeah, you cannot infuse it. So there is difference between sterile and and having endotoxin count below a per- particular number. So the dialysate is not sterile. And um, so while we are suggesting New York to like do their own studies, we are saying use it in within four to six hours in the same way you would do your HD treatment. Prepare the bag, take it and use it quickly. The saving uh, grace for us is the dialysate won't come in contact with the blood. It would be across the membrane, so it's relatively safe, but you cannot infuse it. And um, and uh, and so that's crucial. We spoke with the FDA today and they, are, they had similar concerns and they said um, we should do a lot of testing for microbiology and other things to make sure that the time of collection or the time of... Um, Attaching the bags, you are not introducing any any more contamination. So, um, and, and there is there is a a CRT machine that has an RO built right into it that generates its own dialysate uh, in real time. What what is that called? Anybody know what that is? 
I think the Tableau, Tableau. machine is what Tableau yeah. machine. Yeah. That's right. Tableau. Yeah, it's, we, like we a, it's like a a water cooler. Have that, Big water. I saw it at ASN uh, this year that um, it has a built-in RO and you can generate your own uh, CRRT. But it would be the same concept, I guess. At some yeah, level. I think that's exactly right. It's the same concept. They look like they, water coolers. It's yeah. uh, put your drinks in there. Tableau. <laughs> I can pull up pictures, a couple of pictures, if people want to see just for the heck of it. I don't know if uh, it matters. It's a podcast, right? Yeah, this is a podcast. Uh, yeah, we that's can't right. see uh, it. What yeah. you need to do is do a very careful description. Give yeah. them a mental picture. So um, go out to the ballpark. You have your drinks. Put it into a cooler. That's what the tableau looks like. <laughs> ah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. And, but the thing is that, you know, um, uh, and again, I'm the uh, resident communist fellow from Canada. Uh, it bugs me that dialysate is so expensive, right? All these yes. CRRT solutions, they're really just a mix of sugar and salt and electrolytes and water. Right. And they are so, so expensive. Uh, like you say, it doesn't... But they, they are called Prismasol and Prismasate. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we uh, essentially every center can prepare its own dialysate. The second thing we noticed is um, when you add uh, acetate and uh, calcium in the same fluid, because of all the PK, etc., after six hours or six to eight hours, the calcium will start dropping because it will um, it will precipitate, precipitate out. Yep. So it's um, it it will displace the sodium and um, and the calcium will go down. So I think if you can handle um, uh, to prepare it and use it within six to eight hours, uh, you may not have to spend anything. And um, it may be a, a very good cost saving. Um, so we do mainly CVVH at our institution. And I've heard that we have about maybe two to three weeks left of replacement fluid. Um, but um, for us, we're planning to just have our pharmacy prepare the bags as used to be done before I was a fellow. Um, and swap, as you said, probably the cheaper way to do it anyway. Um, and we had stopped doing that for more quality control um, to kind of prevent errors from happening with ordering and preparation of the bags. Um, but we're kind of preparing to go back to that old school um, method. Wow. Yeah, no, the pharmacists, if they prepare TPN, so there is no reason they cannot prepare a five liter dialysis bag. It's just, it's if you need large volumes, you'll use a couple of pharmacists in doing this. Here, a college student can uh, keep collecting the bags. And they're really busy uh, just giving us tons of Lokelma, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. We are going through so much potassium binder. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the other things that uh, Sinai is doing to uh, alleviate some of their needs on uh, uh, renal replacement therapies are using acute peritoneal dialysis. And this is why we have... uh, uh, El Shami here. Walk us through what you, what, you, what are you guys doing there? Basically, the, the idea was to kind of help take the load off the, um, the hemodialysis unit here. Um, the issue isn't really in terms of uh, the equipment, it's staffing, you know, given the current circumstances with COVID, you know, you have uh, nurses who are, you know, falling ill. And so you're not really able to uh, match the demand for dialysis uh, just purely based on like staffing issues. So uh, what we do is we assess the patients who um, who uh, require dialysis. So if there's an urgent need for a clearance, if the patient is you know hyperkalemic with a potassium of seven or has severe uremic symptoms or acidosis, then in that case, you know we we defer you know that patient to start uh, hemodialysis um, um, initially at least for clearance, prior to considering uh, transitioning to uh, peritoneal dialysis in the inpatient setting. Now, if the patient is like a CKD four or five patient who is expected to have a prolonged hospital stay, uh, then we start the patient on hemodialysis. If it's a severe case of AKI being transitioned to dialysis, again, we would consider then peritoneal dialysis uh, for this patient. And if the patient was already admitted from uh, like earlier um, and had started on hemodialysis and is still expected to stay in the hospital for some time, then uh, transition those patients as well to um, peritoneal dialysis as much, as much as we are able to. The plan was then, you know, if after we do this, we're still not, you know, we're not getting enough numbers, we're not able to alleviate, um, you know, the load that we have, 
then if we reach a stage where things are so dire, then we would consider switching outpatient hemodialysis patients to peritoneal dialysis um, in the uh, inpatient setting and then transition them back to their hemodialysis units upon discharge. So but right now, you guys are picking out relatively stable patients. Is that a fair assessment for the people that are doing this acute PD, or do I misunderstand you? No, actually, um, we've had patients on multiple pressors. Another really? uh, day, a patient who's in the CCU on three pressors and tolerating peritoneal dialysis uh, well. Um, th- those same patients, of course, are uh, don't tolerate uh, regular hemodialysis, and uh, a lot of them have had issues uh, with clotting, of course, in the CVVH circuit. Can you tell us a little bit about the catheter placement and who's doing that and how you decide how that's done? Basically, uh, we're lucky here that we have uh, a couple of surgeons who are willing to place the catheters at the bedside, which is something that, you know, initially the idea that we had was, you know, we're going to get someone in IR and uh, these relatively stable patients are going to be wheeled down to the IR suite where they're going to get their catheters placed. But then we noticed that Uh, The vast majority of the patients who need hemodialysis right now that we're seeing are, you know, severe patients with, you know, patients with uh, respiratory issues who are not stable that if you sedate them in the IR suite may require to be intubated. And so it was, it was difficult being able to help take the load off hemodialysis without switching to the bedside uh, modality. So those patients that are on room air or uh, two, three liters of O2 nasal cannula, who require renal replacement therapy, those go to the IR suite. Those that are intubated, uh, which is a large number, I mean, we've had census, uh, you know, in the ICU with renal consults uh, of about like 70 patients um, that renal is consulted on, most of which require renal replacement therapy. Those patients are intubated. Um, Some of them are even paralyzed. So our surgeons go to the bedside and they place the peritoneal dialysis catheter there. Where we've had you know, problems is patients that are on non-rebreathers or patients who are on high flow nasal cannula, then making that decision of, you know, uh, is it worth it to sedate this patient and take the risk of potentially needing to intubate this patient just to put them on peritoneal dialysis? So those patients, at least for the time being, you know, where we just defer uh, placement of peritoneal dialysis catheters in. So you kind of got a bimodal distribution. Patients that are very sick and in the ICU, you can go ahead and do it. Patients that are doing real well, no respiratory com- compromise, they can go to the IR suite. Yep. Yeah, it's it's uh, hard to find that middle ground now. You're trying to tackle that those uh-huh. patients that are in between. And to address uh, uh, Samir's other point, which is like, you know, when do we start using the catheters? So uh, we actually start using the catheters less than 24 hours after a catheter insertion. Actually, just this morning, had a patient who had the catheter placed at 8 o'clock in the morning, and by noon, we were using uh, the peritoneal dialysis catheter. Did you, were you doing acute PD before COVID? This is your first experience with acute PD. Yes. It's, uh, I mean, I had uh, previously um, you know, looked into uh, urgent start peritoneal dialysis and had done a lot of uh, you know, research into kind of the background and what's needed for it. And but you hadn't executed yet. But we hadn't really executed. As a matter of fact, um, prior to this, we were still using the, the manifold system, whereas where you're not using cyclers in the inpatient setting, but you, know, you have bags that are hanging with mm-hmm. the solutions prepared. And we rolled out uh, cycler usage um, about just about a week before we started urgent start uh, peritoneal dialysis. And it was on uh, one of our peritoneal dialysis patients who was admitted to the ICU. We hooked him up to the cycler and kind of used it as a test run of, you know, how well will cyclers work on the inpatient side of things? And of course, you find a whole different bag of issues that you deal with when it's an acute catheter that has been there for less than 24 hours in terms of draining and, you know, other, other things that... What kind of volumes are you using in that first, those first exchanges? So the first day, we used uh, one liter fills, uh, 1.5%, and we, we put the patients on the machine for 10 hours, and we do about five or six cycles. Mm-hmm. I'd say the first day is always the roughest. Especially since we're not really picking patients in terms of BMI. I mean, we have, we have 
most of our patients actually uh, weights above 90 kilograms. And those patients have large spaces in terms of like, you know, the, their peritoneal uh, cavity is pretty large. So a liter really for them is very- That's the most polite way to say that you're heavy. You have a very large <laughs> peritoneal cavity. <laughs> Uh, so, so when we fill those patients with a liter, you know, we run into draining problems. So when, when the cycler is trying to drain, it's not able to drain that full amount. And then at that point, you start thinking you know, one of two things. Either you don't have enough or you have a leak. You know, fluid in there, right? Actually, we've only had one leak. And that yeah. resolved uh, after, uh, after, like, that resolved on the third day. So we were just changing the dressing and kind of seeing how it goes. And on that third day was when we were going to pull the trigger and say, you know what, you know, this patient is not a good candidate for uh, PD. We don't want to increase this patient's risk of per developing peritonitis. They're already sick enough as it is. No sense in adding another complication to this patient's, you know, admission. But thankfully, it, it stopped and he's, uh, he was doing very well on PD. Sorry, Sorry Jenny, please. Yeah. What about Jenny, patients please. who are getting prone so those patients we've actually uh, we've, uh, stopped uh, PD on. And so far, to be honest, we've had two patients who were on PD who were then prone. And both patients passed within 24 hours of proning. I did have a discussion um, earlier today with our one of our pediatric nephrologists about that. Because, you know, they, you know, he was telling me that you know, we don't react with them too much because we don't see them around, you know, uh, like the hospital, but he was in the dialysis unit earlier. And, you know, he said that they do um, urgent start PD on their patients. I asked him about proning and he said that, well, those, those that they anticipate will be prone soon. They uh, try to get the PD catheter placed left and there's a hole apparently that they have so that the catheter, the connection basically goes through, you know, everything that's wrapped around the patient. And he said that they've had really good success with that. However, it's, you know, it's difficult to do that with our adult patients. It's hard to anticipate, you know, if, if they will be prone. And to be honest with you, we're just thankful that our surgeons are so willing to place the catheters. And I don't know what issues then we're going to run into to start placing the catheters, um, laterally in terms of draining, especially. Any trouble getting metabolic control? Some of these patients are incredibly hyperkalemic, hyperphosphatemic. How's that going? We've had one patient who needed uh, CVVH uh, because of hyperkalemia. And it was, it was very odd. It was, he, had, uh, he had been pretty well controlled for four days uh, with PD, his hyperkalemia that is. It had, his potassium was running in 3.5 to 4 range. And then for some reason, up to uh, 6.7, 6.8. So the ICU team wanted him to go uh, on CVVH for clearance. But actually, he only got four hours of CVVH and needed to be switched back to PD afterwards because they really needed to use the CVVH machine on another patient at the time. And, you know, the, the, he was really the only one who needed an interruption from PD to achieve better clearance. This is an incredible experience. What have been the surprises that you've run into? What, what things did you not anticipate when you started doing this acute PD that you've learned? Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been an emotional roller coaster. There are days, you know, sorry, this is probably another PD patient who needs to be addressed. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm actually sitting in the peritoneal dialysis unit. This is part of like kind of the hands-on experience that I'm trying to... Are you sleeping in there? I'm sorry? Yeah, I am sitting in there. No, sleeping. Oh, sleeping in there. Oh, that, that was my last weekend. Sorry, one second. Can I call you back? So to answer your question, um, I think nursing. Nursing is, is something that I didn't anticipate. I um, noticed that I kind of uh, ran into a, a brick wall on um, like Saturday morning uh, because, you know, a lot, the nurses on the floors are not, not our nurses, right? So the, the nurses on the floors, they're extremely overwhelmed, right? Everyone is really stretched thin. And, you know, the last thing you want to deal with is uh, a beeping peritoneal dialysis site, right? But what do I do with that? You know, they're used to the CVVH machine. If you press stop on the peritoneal dialysis cycler, it's not harmless, right? Like if you stop it, there's this dextrose solution that's sitting there that's going to be absorbed and you're adding volume to your patient. So it's not really as straightforward as CVVH where you can just stop the treatment and, you know, that's it. Like the patient isn't, there is no harm that's being done with this extended dwell. So in the beginning, before pushing for like longer hours for our nursing, I did spend the large part of my week and actually both nights this past weekend in the hospital personally speaking to every single patient's nurse to tell them like, call me so I can come because I learned how to troubleshoot uh, the machine from our nurses. 
I learned how to hook patients on so I can help with our nurses. I think it's easy to envision a system where you are able to put patients on PD, but uh, without a full understanding of how long it takes to just take a patient off, drain all the bags from the night before, hook the patient on again, and then like wait until the first fill. Like this is the process that they go through because you're looking to see, is there any leaks? Are there any issues with the fill? and then leave and go downstairs to your next patient, that takes a lot of time and then requires expansion of your peritoneal dialysis nursing capabilities during the day. And at the same time, you know, we have, we have an unusual situation where our peritoneal dialysis unit is also an outpatient. So here, like, it's in the hospital serving the inpatient side and the outpatient side. So being able to kind of manage both at the same time, it's has been challenging, but but a great experience and successful thus far. Excellent. Dr. Sue, what kind of wisdom do you have from Wuhan for us? What were the surprising things or lessons that you learned? Uh, what do you mean? What, what we learned from the dialysis patients? No, just in general. What, what you know, from your experience going through uh, COVID uh, in Wuhan, do you have uh, any bits of wisdom that you want to share with us? Things that were surprising to you that still kind of bounce around your brain? I think the most important thing is the prevention the transmission and if we really infected with this virus currently we do not very uh, special uh, or the effective therapy to this virus just uh, i think the uh, how to increase the immunity of the whole body and uh, uh, it is very important because uh, in many patients in their later stage, they were co-infected with other bacteria, even fungal or even other virus. So mm. I think the whole picture we need to to, to think. Excellent, excellent. Can I can I ask Please. one question on this acute PD? So. Are we, I, when I trained as a fellow in Colorado, they used to do a lot of acute PD and um, we would exter actually externalize the catheter um, on our own uh, after a after, uh, few weeks. Are we, and then it went out of favor because the long-term outcomes were not as, as um, acceptable or how we would like it. Um, are we worried about this uh, going forward in terms of, I know it's the right thing to do, in terms of all this shortage and it's a superb uh, creative solution uh, what sort of infection risk or the long-term risk that we can tell these patients when this crisis is over or does anybody know that so i know we're placing uh, still double cuffed catheters here so they're not the same catheters that used to be placed before with like the, the acute start pd where you know all you got to do is make an incision put the catheter in and start dialyzing but i i think that there is there definitely is concern for peritonitis i can tell you that i've had multiple requests from medical icu teams post catheter insertion when they noticed that the white blood cell count you know jumped right so it went from 13 to 15 to 20 and then they're thinking peritonitis and you're looking at clear pd fluid and you know i think this is the first time that like I send on an inpatient patient multiple uh, peritoneal dialysis fluid studies for cell count where I see a white blood cell count of zero and an RBC count of zero. But uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a very valid concern. And, and now we're running into that phase where you have patients who have catheters who are, especially those, you know, on uh, the other end of the spectrum, those that are on nasal cannulas and we're on room air who are getting geared up for discharge. And something that, you know, we didn't really think about very much in the beginning was like the, the idea was if the patient would be a good candidate for home modalities great here's a line that's in here's a catheter sorry that's in that you can use for outpatient peritoneal dialysis you're good to go but do you want to expose your nursing staff to a patient who's pd positive coming in for multiple hours of training afterwards on pd i think that's also something to to consider uh, for these patients. And, you know, we've had to make the difficult decision to say, you know, not at least for two weeks post-discharge uh, for these patients. But yeah, we, 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 we have banned training any COVID-positive patients at our institution also. So to partly address Chirag's uh, comments, we, use, we still 
uh, for outpatients before, of course, COVID happened. We used to do buried PD catheters. Um, so these catheters are put in, uh, like you describe, and and they stay underneath the skin. There is nothing visible outside. And we don't exteriorize them until six weeks. Um, and it's often longer. So if it's a pre-dialysis patient, you know, we put in the PD catheter when we think they're, you know, a few months away from dialysis. And sometimes the patients don't progress. So the catheter stay in yep. for, you know, months or years even. Uh, and from our experience, which we have published, it looks like you're right. The, uh, the incidence of leaks and early infections are extremely low to non-existent with a buried PD catheter. On the other hand, the, um, the incidence of uh, complications such as uh, uh, the catheter non-function because the catheter which has been in for a long time migrates right. here and there and it doesn't function is a little bit higher. Um, though, of course, this is like all the chronic PD um, literature, right. you know, in, in this setting, you know, what you guys are doing uh, at yes. Mount Sinai is, is pretty heroic stuff. I'm, I'm just amazed and uh, mind blown by what you guys are doing. Rick, do you have any any bits of wisdom, any things that you've uh, you've learned about COVID or uh, that you wanna that are pretty interesting at this point? So, so we have about um, uh, we have a full COVID service. So we have four consult services. We have made one which is fully COVID. We have about 18, 20 patients chronically on the service after discharge. We have done two biopsies. The findings are very similar to uh, what uh, Agnes just described. We are seeing a lot of clotting as usual that a lot of people have described. Yeah. And uh, everybody is on systemic heparin. Two patients got started on agatroban and uh, one of the clinical faculty did a presentation on Wednesday about how to use it. And we are learning. We don't do citrate um, at our institution traditionally. So that's something uh, new and interesting. There are few things, um, being a biomarker guy, I'm seeing um, the D-dimer levels are unusually very, very high. Even yeah. in patients, uh, the ferritin levels are very, very high. And um, I've seen at least three or four patients where the levels are more than 10,000. So the inflammatory component is out of proportion to a lot of other similar multi-organ diseases or infection that I have uh, ended up uh, seeing. We are starting to do IL-6 in our hospital locally. So I've started seeing those numbers in there again, very high. So the phenotyping is pretty interesting. Um, if I think of the general nephrology piece, we were very worried about what will happen to our ESRD patients. And um, we started a new dialysis unit and a new shift where every COVID cohorted yep. approach. But it's not despite all the comorbidities and high BMI and male and African-American, everything. So we have we have half our patients who would fit all the risk factors. We are not seeing a lot of COVID in them. So that, that two phases of the disease where, oh, you need something to mount that inflammation. And the first part is your inflammatory reaction that people have described is probably fitting into our chronic ESRD patients where... Um, they are just not mounting enough. It's again a theory, but I would have expected like a lot of them in the ICU and it's the same incidence that you would get in a flu or something like that. So again, these are early opinions. We have one more or two more months to go and things may change. But I, I, I'll tell you, I, I've seen the exact same thing. I've been surprised at how we haven't had that experience where one dialysis unit, where just like a, a wildfire, yes, like like we've seen in these nursing homes, where you you one night they'll bring in fifty people from one nursing home because it just it just takes off and gets out of control. Right. But I do feel like my dialysis units are tinderboxes, and we've just kind of been lucky. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully our patients actually are naturally resistant, but it does it makes me nervous. I'm very. But we cannot be lucky thousand times, right? When we are lucky thousand <laughs> times, it's P less than zero point zero five. So. There's something to be learned about the disease uh, being tolerant here. And so, but I don't want to jinx it. As soon as I say tomorrow, I think something may go wrong. But uh, even the ICUs, I was hoping, I, I was, we had planned that every ESRD patient would be in the ICU getting sick very quickly and requiring, not, it's more AKI than ESRD in the ICU. Agreed. Agreed. Um, anybody seeing these AKI people come off of uh, dialysis? Are we getting good renal recovery over time? I've seen some recovery, uh, but not in patients that progressed to dialysis. So people that got close, but then turned around. Agreed. 
Agreed. I've we, not seen people come off dialysis so much. Really? So again, so again, this may be a different phenotype. We are seeing a lot of extubations and a lot of people coming off dialysis. The mortality at Hopkins has been uh, low. Um, again, don't know why. Um, and maybe it, it could change because the whole peak has not happened or the, the total cases are not there. But um, in the first month of March, um, out of 50 ICU cases, we had three people who died. Everybody else um, was extubated, discharged of dialysis. Oh, those are um, great numbers. We're also seeing a lot of people that were kind of limping along in, uh, in CKD stage four or uh, stage five coming in with COVID. And it's just, they don't, they get so catabolic, their, their four nephrons can no longer hold them up, keep them off and they're starting dialysis. A number of people has COVID's been the initiating event to start dialysis. Wow. So it's, it's very heterogeneous. There is no question about it between um, the virus and the host, between yeah. all the experiences across the country. Yeah. Jenny, what have you seen new in the last week? Well, you know, again, in at Northwestern, we continue to be lucky. Uh, things have been holding steady. Uh, there are about 50 uh, COVID ICU patients, and only 13 of them are requiring uh, nephrology consults in terms of ICU patients. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, not bad. And, you know, our leadership had gone to the CEO of the hospital when this first became an issue, like in early March, and basically the hospital was able to double the capacity of the machines that we have for hemodialysis. So you guys are well, you guys are ready. Yeah, so we, yeah, so we're ready. Uh, We're just kind of bracing ourselves a little bit, but things seem to be flattening out a little bit more in Illinois. So we're optimistic that things will continue to hold steady. And Jay Paparello, who was one of our former fellowship uh, program directors and still works very closely with the medicine residents, has noted that actually the house staff morale has been pretty high. And it was attributed to the concept that burnout is not so much about the amount of work that you're doing, but uh, feeling that you are doing meaningless work. And right now, everyone feels like they're doing meaningful work. So um, there's been no complaints about having to put in extra time or or having to chip in more. So everyone's been coming together. We have added more services, uh, like there's a COVID floor consult service, COVID ICU service, and then you know, doing e-consults to try to minimize fellow exposure to direct patient contact. So everyone's been pulling together, which has been really nice. And yeah, so we're pretty optimistic. We've only done one acute PD um, case. And but again, the surgeons are pretty much ready to roll. They have the bedside kits ready just in case, but it hasn't come to that. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, Dr. Soup. Yeah, yeah. Because today I'm on duty. I'm very sorry. Oh, you've been great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank so it was such an honor, thank such you. an honor to have you, please. Yeah, yeah, thank you for doing that study. I mean, that's yeah, that study was really one of the most important pieces of data that we have, real evidence coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, Dr. Dr. Fogo, thank you for hooking us up with her. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I've got to go too. Uh, so um, really nice talking to everybody. Okay, see you, see you Matt. See you, Matt. Okay. Bye. Swapnell, Ontario, some seems like it's on fire. Those nursing homes, every one of them is going up. Yeah. So, so our overall numbers have been, we locked down pretty fast in Canada and in Ontario, you know, about a month ago or, or even more than that. So we haven't had that huge spike, uh, but the nursing home data is extremely concerning. We have a lot of long-term care facilities, which have had these outbreaks and, um, I'm not sure exactly what is going on. Um, I, I think this is uh, similar to um, some other places, uh, even in the U.S., where what has happened is these these residents of long-term care facilities, they are not sick enough to be admitted necessarily. Uh, so they stay in the long-term care facility, but that just means that it's like a cruise ship, right? Uh, so it, it spreads. Uh, uh, it spreads. And you can't justify admitting these patients just to get them out when the hospital's also filling up. Um, so uh, it just spreads through the long-term care facility, and that's the most fragile, you know, um, and vulnerable population. I'm not sure what is causing the spread. It seems a lot of these employees work at many places, right? They are not extremely highly paid. They often have many jobs. Uh, maybe it's the healthcare workers or or 
what have you. From our perspective, it's also difficult because, you know, some of our dialysis patients live in long-term care facilities. So even if the facility is locked down, uh, the dialysis patient has to come to the facility and go back. So it could work out both ways, right? These patients could carry the infection back to the long-term care facility or they could bring it into the dialysis unit. Uh, so we have got a lot of those hotspots, like 60-70% of the deaths in Ontario are in the long-term care facility. Oh. It's, it's a tragedy yeah. uh, that is uh, happening there. Uh, Dr. Fogo, what's, uh, what's, what's life like at Ed Vanderbilt now? A listing of competencies of everybody with call-in every day in case there needs to be deployment outside of usual duties based on competency. And so far, those have not have to been implemented. There were tents set outside the medical center for screening with staff being deployed and trained to have screening of incoming patients. And we have not come close to reaching capacity within Vanderbilt. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, we are in Detroit. Uh, we feel like we are definitely over our uh, peak COVID moment. We are every day admitting fewer and fewer patients that are COVID positive uh, and, and people uh, under investigation. So that is really encouraging. And I'm, uh, I, I can, you can just feel it when you are discharging more patients than you're admitting. And there's hope that we're going to start kind of de-escalating some of the uh, like uh, makeshift ICUs that we've built out of the cath lab, for example. So it were it feels good to be on this side of the surge. This has been a long, freely filtered. I really appreciate everybody joining us. Uh, this is really great guest. Uh, swap. What do you got? Uh, I don't think we introduced Chirag, so we should get that. Uh, yeah, no, we, we got we, we 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 did. We did get him. We did. We okay. did get Yeah. <laughs> So we, so maybe I missed it. You know, Chirag is so famous. So, so Chirag and I went to the same med school. He was a year ahead of me in Mumbai, and uh, his his class was a bunch of high achievers. Really, extremely, extremely high achievers. And and even in those high achievers, Chirag stood out as a as a extremely high, you know, high higher than high achievers. So it's no surprise uh, he is where he is. The thing I remember most, of course, was. We, we all lived in a dorm and uh, uh, Chirag used to come in and play bridge. Uh, I didn't know anything about bridge. I, I still, uh, you know, I'm not a bridge player. It's a very cerebral game. Uh, but, you know, when all of us were trying to study and cram, uh, Chirag would have exams the next day and he would be sitting there playing bridge and, <laughs> you know, and, and then score extremely high the next day. <laughs> Those are good days. Good days. Yep. <laughs> Hey, uh, appreciate everybody joining us. This was, a, I think, an important episode. Thanks a lot.